Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the New Year and the Good Roads podcast. I am Jared LeMay and working overtime planning for this year's Good Roads conference for April 16th, Thomas Barakat. Thomas, you're working on your second conference at, uh, at the helm of planning. How, how's it going thus far? Uh, it's going pretty well, Jared. We got a lot of uh, exciting speakers for the conference this year. Uh, Brent Tedarian, the world-renowned urbanist, is going to be uh, the headliner. Um, we got Peter Weltman, who, uh, as well as the the FAO, who's going to talk about his uh, his studies on public infrastructure and climate change adaptation. Um, so there's lots there for everyone. Uh, a lot more technical sessions as well, and five set four or five study tours. Uh, so we look forward to seeing everyone there. Yeah, those look exciting as well. And um, Ken Beer from um, Australia. From Australia. Uh, he'll be on the next episode of the podcast. So um, check that out as well and uh, learn about what he'll be talking about. But while we're on the uh, topic of the conference, uh, today's guest, he's a staple at uh, the Good Roads Conference for the last couple of years, uh, making waves in the business world, mainly uh, with food related ventures. He took the leap into politics by becoming actively involved in Ontario's Green Party as far back as 2004, eventually rising to its leadership and securing its first seat at Queen's Park for the city of Guelph. With all that being said, it's a pleasure to welcome Mike Schreiner to the Good Roads Podcast. Welcome, Mike. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Jared and Thomas. Pleasure pleasure to join you. And I always look forward to the Good Roads Conference, which I've been going to for many years. And I think it's great that uh, your uh, Peter Waltman is going to be one of your speakers. Uh, it was actually my request that uh, oh, wow. prompted his investigation into just the climate risks associated with Ontario's uh, infrastructure. And I think those reports are groundbreaking uh, reports. And and so I'm really pleased that you, you'll be one of your featured speakers. That'll be fantastic. That'll be, um, like we've been saying, it's going to be a fantastic session at the conference. So uh, check that out. But while we're on the topic of the municipal sector and, um, and uh, uh, oh, losing my train of thought here. Well, um, <laughs> uh Climate change. climate change. Thank you. Um, it's yeah. It feels like a Monday morning. Um, so you, you were just reelected. Um, what are your plans and priorities for the municipal sector this coming term? And I'm guessing they're going to have a lot to do with climate change. Yeah, and uh, Bill 23, and it's all connected, frankly. And you know what? I, I just delivered my speech uh, earlier this week to the Rural Ontario Municipal Association, and. A lot of what I presented there, you know, is applicable to to AMO as well. And, and that's really having uh, the province be a real partner uh, and ensuring collaboration and cooperation between the provincial and municipal levels of government. Because right now we really have a provincial government that is continuing the downloading of costs on the municipalities. And I think having a very adversarial relationship with municipalities, particularly around uh, Bill 23, uh, which is likely going to lead to significant uh, either tax increases or service cuts at the at the municipal level, and and you know so the message I've been delivering is, uh, you know the province needs to step up, upload fifty percent of shelter and housing uh, costs while still maintaining municipal control over over management. I'd like to see the province restore fifty uh, percent of transit operating funding costs as well, so we can maintain the reliability and affordability of transit, which is so critically important to people's, you know, cost of living concerns, but the livability and mobility and, and connections within our communities. Uh, we've been advocating for the province to make a substantial investment, $6 billion over four years, in mental health and addiction services. 
uh, and to really expand those services and, and cover them over under OHIP as well. It's just making sure there's uh, services available in communities. And I know when I talk to municipal leaders, one of the biggest pressures they are facing is just managing the intersection of mental health, addictions, and homelessness in our communities. I know it's definitely affecting our downtowns and main streets across the province. And I can't tell you how many small businesses I've talked to are just, you know, struggling with the impacts um, that, 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 you know, uh, mental health is playing on our streets and not to mention the fact that it's just, you know, the quality of life uh, for people who are experiencing mental health challenges and addictions challenges. And then finally, I'll just close with a commitment to funding a $2 billion a year climate adaptation fund. And we can get into the reasons behind that. Uh, if we want to talk about uh, Peter Weltman's studies that have from the FA out of the FAO office on, on climate impacts to public infrastructure. But the bottom line is, 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 you know, that may seem like a big number, but it's probably low when you look at the risk that municipality and municipal infrastructure is facing. And, and so I think the province, you know, has to step up and, and be a funding partner to municipalities. We only have one taxpayer and downloading all those costs onto the property tax base is simply not sustainable. Yeah. And uh, so, Mike, you, you started your uh, you started here talking about Bill 23, and that was obviously you know, we didn't we didn't see that coming back in June when you know right, right after the re-election, it wasn't really mentioned in the throughout the uh, election uh, at all. So it was you know it was a very disruptive or uh, a thing that came out uh, a piece of legislation, I guess, um, to the municipal sector. It's it's really kind of caught everybody off guard, uh, kind of threw us in a whole bunch of different directions to kind of come to terms with it and to grasp all the different aspects of it because there were so many changes, not just in Bill 23, but then in the subsequent legislations that came out after that as well, plus the myriad of uh, legis- sorry, of regulations that, uh, um, that came out as well. Um, so the, the, the province, uh, essentially, they've been arguing that this sort of change, the changes in Bill 23 are, you know, essential for, um, for building housing. We need to kind of we need to do that now. You've you've um, put forward two ho- two bi- bills relating to housing, um, not too long after Bill Twenty Three came out. So I guess what I w- would like to ask you is, um, if the province, uh, if we do- if we don't do Bill Twenty Three, or if we had you know reverse Bill Twenty Three, what would what would the Green Party do to kind of um, get to that goal of one point five million homes? And uh, how can the municipal sector kind of, would, how would that affect the municipal sector? How could we work together with a uh, potential green government? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, uh, we have a housing affordability crisis. There is like no doubt about it. And we need market and non-market solutions. This government is only focused on market solutions. So I'm going to focus on that to start my response. But I also want to just pin the fact that we, we are going to need non-market solutions as well. So yes, we have a shortage of supply. How do we ramp up that supply in the most affordable way for people and municipalities? And I can tell you that the premier sprawl agenda is simply unaffordable. It's unaffordable for people and families because it's gonna force people into long, expensive commutes. It's unaffordable for municipalities because servicing sprawl is very expensive. And you don't need to be a municipal planning expert to understand this. It's like 
sewer main lines, water main lines, streets, hydro lines, um, you know, uh, you know, less density for transit, the, the need to have have schools and libraries and other public infrastructure built out in, in, in a more spread out way is just hugely expensive. And yeah, we've, so, we've, yeah, Mike, we've talked about that so many times on this podcast. And <laughs> okay, I think so we're I've, on the same page. I, yeah, and I th- and I, it's funny because I think uh, something I've said a few times here is that sprawl is like is like the least fiscally responsible way to move forward with planning from an, even especially from an infrastructure perspective. It's also the environmental perspective, which you know I'm sure you would touch on. But from, I'm going to do that next. <laughs> yeah, and we're, so we're like the municipal infrastructure association, and we keep saying. If you if you do sprawl, we're going to be stuck with this municipal infrastructure deficit that keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger because it just exacerbates the problem and it becomes structural. And municipalities don't have the tools to pay for that. Uh, and it doesn't seem like there's going to be a change in the municipal, uh, you know, revenue uh, or, or revenue tools anytime soon. So we're essentially baking in a, an infrastructure deficit with the sprawl. Yeah, and and to make it worse, Bill Twenty Three takes away your um, municipality's ability to. Um, charge development charge funds uh, uh which is going to even you know hurt municipal budgets even more and then so the fiscal side of this makes absolutely no sense for municipalities or for people and families the environmental side of it is is we know that um the the climate crisis according to the finance accountability officers um study is the co- additional costs associated with climate change to municipal infrastructure is going to be like $25 billion in the next seven years, just this decade alone, not to mention projecting out, you know, 300 billion over over the rest of this century. And if we continue to pave over the farmland that feeds us, the nature, the wetlands that clean our drinking water and protect us from flooding and other extreme weather events, those costs are only going to escalate. So it's fiscally irresponsible in that respect as well. So what I've done is, you know, as an opposition party, it's easy to criticize. And <laughs> that's part of my job is to hold government accountable. But I also think part of my job is to put forward solutions. Right. And and that's what I've done with Bill 44 and Bill 45, which is just about how do we build gentle density and mid-rise density so we get past this false choice between tall and sprawl. Like we're going to need some tall, or, you know, in certain locations. But this false choice that it's just tall or sprawl is completely unsustainable and doesn't build affordable communities. Uh, And the housing, the province's own handpicked housing affordability task force has even said this. Uh, And I don't agree with everything the task force came up with, but they've said like land is not the barrier. One of the biggest barriers is exclusionary zoning. And so what I've proposed with Bill 44 is let's remove exclusionary zoning in single family neighborhoods and allow four plexes and four story walk up apartments that's not going to change the character of neighborhoods. It's going to enable us, though, to quickly and affordably ramp up housing supply, making better use of existing infrastructure and build homes where people want to live in you know, neighborhoods they want to live in close to where they work that are more affordable for families. And yeah, I'll just give you one quick example. Some municipalities are already moving in this direction. You know, I toured you know, a space in Kitchener um, uh, earlier this fall 
where somebody took a bungalow and made it into two apartments and then built a tiny home on the same piece of property. And now three families are living where one family used to live. Wow. More affordable for all three of those families. They're all right next to the school that they their kids can walk to. Um, if we start doing that in neighborhoods across the province, we can really ramp up supply quickly. And then with Bill 45, it's about creating uh, mid-rise density along major transportation corridors, making it as of right to build six to 11 story uh, multi-residential spaces. And obviously, you know, Toronto is different than Guelph. So six stories may be appropriate for Guelph, 11 stories for Toronto, some neighborhoods in Toronto, maybe six. So having some flexibility there, but you know, if you go down, you know, I was just, you know, talking, I was doing a podcast um, in, in Toronto yesterday. And it's like, if you go down like King Street, Queen Street, Dundas, College, St. Clair, Eglinton, like these are major transportation corridors that are full of one and two story commercial buildings. Like, like what a bad use of space, yeah. you know, like, why not have that commercial on the first and second floor and then have some setback, you know, six to 11 story apartments again, quickly ramping up the supply of, of market housing that, that it, you know, will be more affordable than sprawl, better use of existing infrastructure and creating vibrant, livable communities where people want to live close to where they work, shop and play. Uh, to me, that's the, that's the way we can most quickly ramp up supply and do it in a way that's the most fiscally responsible way. That being said, we're still going to need the province to step in and be a funding partner for nonprofit and co-op housing as well. I mean, governments got out of that in the mid nineties. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize almost all the deeply affordable housing built in Canada was in the seventies, eighties and early nineties. We're gonna need the provincial and federal government to step up, build build nonprofit co-op housing, as well as permanent supportive housing with wraparound mental health and other supports uh, for people who are experiencing homelessness. Okay, um, Jared, do you want to do you want to uh, move on, or do you want me, do you want me to grab the next one? If you want to go ahead, sure. Okay, yeah. So, Mike, that was great. Great summary of uh, the green position on those. Um, the next thing, let's let's shift gears. I just, yeah, sorry, Jared, I wasn't sure if you wanted to add anything to that, but um, I, I, let's shift gears and talk about uh, road safety. Um, yep. So, you know, again, I'll go back to the to the green platform uh, back in uh, from the spring, and even back to our conference a year ago. Uh, where you said you announced that you would be supporting uh, a Vision Zero framework for the province, it was in the it was also in the green platform. Um, you know we've we've um, we've been we've we've worked you know pretty uh, constructively with the current government on various road safety initiatives. Um, the latest thing we've we've been talking about, and we spoke about with you as well, um, is uh, rural road safety uh, in particular. Um, so we're kind of we've we've taken the Vision Zero thing. We're trying to kind of break it down and maybe into more um, actionable uh, um, items where we can kind of make uh, a dent a little bit more. Uh, uh, you know, make make, make more of a dent. Well, so one thing we've been kind of talking about is 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 road safety, especially like I said in the rural context, road safety audits, uh, this sort of thing, kind of help municipalities especially the smaller ones, figure out where they can make uh, the biggest difference uh, in terms of reducing the number of fatalities and serious injuries on the roads. Um, we're bringing in a, a world-class road safety audit program from Australia, which will be available to our members in the coming months. Um, and uh, we hope to kind of work with the province essentially on 
uh, developing a pool of funding so that when we get these uh, new, newly trained road safety auditors out there making these recommendations, um, that the province has some some capital, some some capital funding there to help municipalities make the roads safer. And the flip side of that is we know that joint and several liability or, or liability issues in general are not going away anytime soon. But for us, the best way to reduce uh, liability pressures, I guess, going up is to uh, stop the incidents from happening in the first place, which is by making our roads safer for all road users. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, is the Green Party, would they be? Would you be supportive of something like that? Or is there something else that you've been working on that's similar to that, that we could work with uh, with the municipal sector? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I, I've been a long-time proponent of reforms to joint and several liability. And I know that's that's been an important issue that Good Roads has been putting forward for, for a number of years now. But I really like your approach of let's, implement evidence-based best practice policies to prevent those kinds of um, incidents from happening in the first place to make our streets and our roads safer. And so, you know, I've publicly come out in support of the province funding uh, the tools that uh, Good Roads is looking at in terms of doing road safety audits. And then we're going to need an infrastructure fund for the province to help support municipalities in implementing the evidence that comes out of those audits. Uh, and so absolutely 100% on board with you on that. And if I can just add to that, I think, um, you know, Good Roads is advocacy for Vision Zero uh, policies uh, is something we strongly support. I'm a big advocate of, you know, infrastructure uh, upgrades to support walking, cycling, uh, people with mobility-assisted devices, uh, looking at things in rural areas like paved shoulders when we, when we uh, redo highways uh, to make them safer for cycling. And I think it would enhance our cycling tourism industry. And maybe we could start catching up with Quebec in that regard. Uh, but also looking at things like... Um, this gets back to the whole sprawl issue is, you know, not only is sprawl dangerous from uh, paving over the farmland that feeds us and threatening our own food security and the $50 billion food and farming economy, but the more we encroach into rural areas and reduce connectivity in rural areas, it becomes much more difficult and dangerous uh, for farmers to move equipment around from field to field. And, and so I think that's a big part of rural road safety as well. And then the final comment I want to make is I've had many conversations with um, municipal leaders uh, from rural communities, especially along the Great Lakes uh, and especially in southwestern Ontario, where you're seeing shoreline erosion uh, really damage um, um, roads that rural municipalities are responsible for financially and in some cases just don't have the fiscal capacity to, to manage that. And in some cases, we actually have um, rural highways that have had to close down uh, due, to, due to shoreline erosion being driven by climate. Uh, and so once again, the importance of having the province there as a funding partner uh, to make uh, that infrastructure more climate resilient so it doesn't all fall onto the property tax base. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, on that, and that's a nice, I think, segue into, you know, we kind of, kind of alluded to it earlier, but the FAO's 
studies on climate change, uh, the effects of climate change on infrastructure. And, you know, kudos to you for, uh, for, for asking the FAO to, to conduct those studies. Um, I remember reading the first one and thought to myself, wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of uh, money that has to go into this to, to, to adapt our infrastructure. And then I realized that was just one category of infrastructure. And then there was also, you know, two or three other reports that have come out since then. And I, and I think there's still some more to come. So needless to say, for those who aren't familiar with this, uh, there's different scenarios uh, of emissions, of rainfall, of uh, extreme weather conditions, essentially. And there's different scenarios that um, uh, in terms of how we how we kind of tackle uh, these changes to our infrastructure, proactive, reactive, that sort of thing. Um, what, what were your thoughts, uh, uh, Mike, when when you read these reports? Did it just reinforce what you already knew? Um, was there anything else that uh, 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 that you wanted to that, that you took from that? Uh, I should say. Yeah, well, I, I Greens have been big believers in being responsible fiscal managers and to make sure we have the evidence and data we need to make long-term fiscally prudent decisions. And and um, sometimes that can be hard in politics because, you know, four-year election cycles, I mean, today's world, you know, sometimes news cycles are, you know, one-hour news cycles, let alone 24-hour yeah. news cycles. So sometimes it can be hard to have that long-range planning. But I think, um, you know, we're already feeling the effects of the climate crisis, you know, increased flooding, increased tornadoes, extreme weather events, droughts. Um, changing freeze-thaw cycles, uh, you know, all of that is impacting our quality of life and our infrastructure. And so I felt that it was important for us to get a, a financial handle on that. And so, I mean, the FAO, I think they've done fantastic work and, you know, there's multiple different scenarios. But the bottom line for me is if you look at the trajectory we are on right now in terms of global emissions, um, the additional costs of climate impacts on the province's infrastructure in the next seven years, this decade is $25 billion, around $6 billion for buildings, uh, like $6.6 billion, I believe, for stormwater, wastewater management, and then about $13.3 billion for transportation, roads, bridges, and transit. Those are significant financial risks. And we know from the Financial Accountability Officer reports that in most cases, if we proactively make that infrastructure more resilient, the costs over the long term are going to be substantially lower. And the cost curve, and it's kind of hard to imagine cost curves out to the end of the century, <laughs> but it's likely over $300 billion, about $325 billion. Wow. So these are significant risks. And so to me, it highlights, one, the need to you know, invest in the actions we need to do to reduce climate pollution by electrifying transportation and buildings and really aggressively and boldly, you know, making Ontario's economy ready to be a global leader in the fast growing markets of the new climate economy. Um, but it also highlights the fact that we're going to have to um, uh, build resilient infrastructure and adapt to the climate change that's already baked in to what, you know, what we've emitted over the last, you know, dec number of decades. And, and so planning for those investments now, I think are vitally important. And again, I just don't see how the property tax base alone is going to be able to shoulder those costs. And that's why the upper levels of government, both the provincial and federal 
uh, levels of government are going to have to come in and support municipal budgets to make that infrastructure climate resilient and climate ready. Can I just give you one example that came out of a conversation I had at, at uh, Roma this you know a couple of days ago? So I had a mayor from Eastern Ontario come up to me and say, I really appreciate you shining a spotlight on this because it's a huge issue for us. I mean, the derecho that, you know, nailed our community, there's down trees everywhere. And we're having a huge challenge in accessing disaster relief funds. And now we're worried that the down trees could be one, a fire hazard as we move into the summer and two, a flooding hazard as we move into the spring because you have so many waterways that are blocked. And so you get that ice blockage uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, as we go through a thaw cycle and then you add rain on top of it and, you know, you're looking at significant flood risk. And so it just shows you it, like in real time, you know, of experiences we've had in the last year of the multiple risk that escalate if we don't actually address these issues up front. Yeah, there's it's certainly a, a massive uh, a topic or issue that, yeah, municipalities certainly can't handle on their own. Um, you know, we've we like a, a number we like to throw out is a infrastructure deficit, municipal infrastructure deficit of thirty four point seven billion. That doesn't even yeah. include any climate change adaptation. That's just trying to get the infrastructure that's existing up to a, a state, a good state of repair. Um, so throwing in climate change adaptation would, you know, as the FAO calculated is, is even more. Um, and with the fiscal tools that municipalities currently have, it's, it's, it is impossible for them to, to do this on their own. Um, you know, there are, there has been some programs from the federal and provincial government, which have been a good start, but yeah, to really get where we need to go, you know, leading up to, you know, 2100. Yeah, we, there's, there's, there's more that, uh, that has to be done. And I think, uh, that constructive relationship is something that, uh, has to, um, to, 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 to continue and to kind of expand, uh, I should say. Yeah. And um, one of the reasons I focus on 2030 so much is like, that's immediate. Like, I think we're, we're making, um, infrastructure decisions right now that affect that 2030 timeline. Right. Um, it's important to know the 2100 timeline, obviously, because we want to prepare accordingly. But sometimes that can just feel like a little abstract, distant and overwhelming for people. So I'm really trying to focus in on what do we need to do to make sure we address like what I would call immediate infrastructure resilient needs. Uh, because, you know, a seven year time horizon, as all of you know, when it comes to infrastructure is not a very long timeline. No, it's not. No. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that when um, we, we were talking about infrastructure from municipal infrastructure and all that, the, the flip side of that is actually electrification, like green vehicles, uh, mm -hmm. electric vehicles, and, you know, just completely as, as an aside. So I'm the president of my condo board. And last night we were talking about how do we uh, prepare for, how do we electrify the building to get the right infrastructure in place to handle the EVs that we're, that pe more people are going to start buying? How do we be proactive about it? How do we install these things? And municipalities are having similar conversations with where do we put charging stations? Um, mm -hmm. How does that integrate with, you know, other infrastructure planning, uh, climate, like with the climate change adaptation? And how do we, how do we kind of decarbonize our economies without, um, you know, affecting the fiscal side of things as well. How do we plan for it? Uh, Twenty, yeah, it's twenty thirty is only seven years away. But the decisions that we make now, for example, I'm using the condo board as just an example. If we put the wrong infrastructure in, that's going to affect the ability in twenty thirty for people to have the right EVs. 
and municipalities are making these sorts of decisions every every day uh, in their in their budget committees and and at their council meetings. And uh, there's just yeah, there's a lot to kind of uh, prepare for. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I, I drive an electric vehicle and I'm driving it all over the province. Like I've been touring. I tour all over Ontario and I've even been in northern Ontario in the winter. And people have said to me, it's like, you can't drive an electric vehicle up here in the winter. And I'm like, yeah, you can. I'm here with mine, you know. Yep. But uh, but a lot of it really relies on, you know, the charging infrastructure we have in place. And, and believe it or not, in some respects, um, it's almost easier being an EV driver accessing charging infrastructure in smaller cities in rural Ontario than it is in a place like Toronto, uh, because most of the charging is in you know paid parking lots that's like twenty bucks to pay here. You, it's hard to find the chargers and things like that. But if you get into you know smaller cities, but still large cities like Guelph, still part of the big city mayors, it's so much easier to find and access EV charging. And then when I'm, uh, you know, traveling, you know, along any of the 400 series highways, but even a lot of our rural highways, um, you know, either between the IV charging network or what municipalities have been doing, um, I can off, I oftentimes don't have a problem finding uh, a charger that I can easily access, do a high speed charge and, and get on my way. Uh, But the challenge is going to be having enough of those in place as more people start driving electric vehicles. And then the other challenge is, is overnight charging for people who live in multi-residential buildings. But yeah, as an EV driver myself, I I share a lot of the same sentiments. Um, The the charging networks, I've I've had one since 2017. I had a 2017 Bolt and... um, with apps like charge hub it's very very easy to know where to go and infrastructure for charging has gotten a lot better and i i don't feel really good saying this but um the province really didn't have a lot well i I shouldn't say they didn't have a lot to do with it. it they took the wrong approach right off the bat i remember provincial charging stations they put them at tim hortons and every single one that i've been to never worked so I ended up relying on, like you said, Ivy on um, chart or not charge hub. Um, some charge of the other ones, but uh, um, even still, they've got them at Canadian tires. Now they've got, and every city, every town has a Canadian tire. Um, they've got them at, uh, was it Esso's on Petro all along the trans Canada? Petro, yeah. So finding them is easy, but yeah. And that's, that's something on the podcast we've discussed before too, is, um, uh, large, uh, like w- w- where there's a lot of people living in a, in like a, a condo, like Thomas said, is trying to find charging for that. And that's been an ongoing problem for Thomas, uh, as the condo board president for <laughs> a little bit now, we, we, we brought that up a few times. So, um, but as the infrastructure gets better, as the technology gets better, it gets easier. Um, and I, and mm-hmm. I'd like to say that, like, like you said, driving up north is not a problem. Finding a charging station and even utilizing it, and even driving through the winter. So, um, yeah. it, it, it's, some, it's coming. Some some municipalities, and you know, I know Guelph the best. Obviously, that's where I live. But yeah. uh, you know, the city was smart. They just built a parking garage right next to City Hall. And I think there's about eight chargers in, in there now, but I think the facility is wired for them to grow that to yeah. 
you know, like 30, maybe, and I want to say 80, but that may be an exaggeration, <laughs> but it's, but they know that the demand for that many chargers is not there right now, but, but they were be. smart enough when they built the building to have it like easy to install more chargers to accommodate growth over time. Right. I think it's going to be that kind of forward thinking that is going to be required um, as, you know, the demand for charging infrastructure increases. And then I look at like in Quebec and, you know, in a lot of European cities now, especially uh, in in urban areas, you know, you have a lot of on-street parking now where you can charge as well. Right. And, and so, you know, I think it's just a matter of us making the investments to, to install the infrastructure. And quite frankly, you know, um, I don't mind paying for it as an EV charge, like paying to charge my car, like, because it's still substantially cheaper than I was, was going to say it's, it's <laughs> still, yeah, ridiculously cheap. When we go to Oshawa to um, see friends down there, it, I, like I can make a round trip from my home to Oshawa with one charge. You, you stop for dinner and you plug into a level three, that 45 minutes at dinner charges you all the way up and you're good to go home with heat. Yeah, but one thing you all bucks <laughs> exactly, yeah. as opposed to the my wife's van costs 120 to fill. Yeah. So, um, but you reminded me too, um, especially with the infrastructure. Uh, one of the things I really disliked was when they took away the charging stations at, at go stations. Mm-hmm. Thomas and I went to a Leafs Coyotes games one night, and we specifically used that go station because there was a charging station there. And I plugged in there. By the time I got back, my car was charged. And the next time we went, it was gone. I was a little bit upset, but yeah, <laughs> those well, are I, those are the on street. Those are the um, easy. Those, those that's the low hanging fruit. The way I see it, yeah. everybody knows where a go station is. You, you could even put them out in the parking lots and leave room for EVs there. If you want people to use the go, if you want people to use public transit, um, we like think. I think one of our first podcasts was like the last mile, right, Thomas? Yeah, that's right. So I mean, you use. Like you, you go to your go station or you go to your public transit, plug your car in there and take that the rest of the way. Yeah. And it's a really important point because I've, I've been very critical of the Ford government pulling the chargers out of go stations. And, you know, one of their responses has been, well, you know, if you go in the morning and you plug your car in and then you work all day and you come back at the end of the day, like who charges that long? But they have so level two. They a lot of people do. completely understand the multiple uses people have, like going to a Leafs game, going to a Jays yeah. game, you know, going to a concert and, you know, you're in, and it made so much sense to be able to park your electric vehicle charge, you know, you know, go into the city, see, you know, have a night out, come back and you got a fully yeah. charged vehicle and to, to have spent public money to install them and then to just rip them out made absolutely no sense to me. And I would agree with them. Uh, like who charges that long if it was a level three charging station, the 440 volts, 45 minutes to 80%, but they were level twos and it takes eight hours to charge uh, on a level two. Well, six to eight, depending on how much you've taken away, but. Which is why it only costs a buck an hour. (laughs) Exactly. Right. So um, yeah, there, there's lots of room for, for infrastructure in terms of electric vehicles and so on and so forth. Um, And And yeah, I was gonna say the other the other angle to this from a municipal perspective is um, is the green or the electrification of our municipal fleets. Um, yes, right. So that could be anything from uh, maintenance vehicles, 
to buses. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, maybe not even electric, electric but zero emissions vehicles. Uh, it could be hydrogen, could be electricity. Um, we're seeing a lot of municipalities kind of trying to go in that direction. And there have been some programs I think it's from the federal government, um, yeah. maybe working with the province. But uh, is there anything you'd like to see more on, on that front, uh, Mike, in terms of, uh, you know, incentives to, 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 to electrify or green um, municipal fleets? Uh, ab- absolutely. And, you know, that's been primarily driven by the federal government. Though the province has put a bit of money in. So I, you know, I remember an announcement being made to electrify Guelph's bus fleet that had both the federal and provincial governments there. Uh, but from my perspective, one of the fastest ways we can ramp up clean, affordable transit is through electric buses. And I know buses have, you know, somewhat of a bad name. Like some people are like, oh, but um, but an electric bus like runs so smooth compared to a non-electric bus. Plus, you don't have the particulate pollution and things like that in neighborhoods as the buses travel. But it's also, quite frankly, the fastest way. I mean, you know, yes, we're going to need more rail. Yes, I'm a big fan of um, LRTs, et cetera, where appropriate. But we also know that if we want to quickly ramp up transit use, uh, electric buses is a way to go. And I find it just frustrating. And I'll use Guelph again as an example, but this exists throughout the province. I cannot get a direct bus connection between Guelph and KW, Guelph and Cambridge, Guelph and Hamilton, Guelph and Brantford. And that's just our neighborhood, you know, let alone Guelph and Fergus or Alora or even a, a, a go bus that isn't a milk run to take me to Toronto. Yeah. You know, I, I would prefer all day two way go. We don't have that yet. So maybe get us a bus. But it, it just, it just, to me, just seems just outrageous. So we haven't done that. I remember when my daughter, uh, went to Laurier for university in the first Thanksgiving, you know, so a couple months in. And I'm like, well, just take the go bus back to Guelph for Thanksgiving dinner, you know? And she's like, dad, it's going to take like two hours. Yeah. Like, that makes no sense. And well, it was like, you know, it just like just some simple measures like that, I think could yeah. quickly, quickly ramp up transit use, do it in a way that's really affordable. And if we do it with electric buses, emission free, and I don't even have a chance. I, I went to Brampton and toured Brampton. And I mean, they have these amazing, I know they're a bit more expensive, but they have these amazing chargers that actually come down on the top yes. of the bus right on street and charge like incredibly quickly. It's almost like why the bus is, you know, sitting there for the driver shift change to happen. You can recharge and be on your way. So there's a lot of really good technology. Well, there's also, important. there's also quick change batteries as well for buses like that. Yep. So, I mean, it, like the technology's there, the technology's growing. It almost seems, I, for lack of a better word, stupid not to <laughs> not to do it. But um, to go back to uh, to your daughter trying to come back from Laurier, like I, I experienced the same thing. I live, I used to live in Oshawa, and I worked in Mississauga. And people are like, "Why don't you take the go?" Because it would be like two go buses, a train, and about four and a half hours of my time to get to work. And that's if I don't have to work overtime and everything runs on time, or I can take an hour in the car. Yeah. So that's from, that's Oshawa to Mississauga. And I mean, it, it, it baffles me when you're talking about um, Guelph to KW because um, the Durham region had a really good system, the DRT, the Durham Regional Transit. They sort of came together with their entire community, Oshawa, um, sorry, Oshawa, Ajax, Pickering, Whitby, 
And that entire area is serviced by Durham Regional Transit and everything is seamless in between the cities. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's something that Guelph should be looking at. Yeah, yeah. And when there is there is a, a transit advocacy group looking at connecting Guelph and Grand River Transit, which yeah. services Waterloo Region and right. figuring out how we can make those kinds of connections. Absolutely. Um, but again, as we've discussed many times on the uh, on the podcast today, municipal budgets are stretched right, right. now. They are really, really stretched. And um, when we're in a housing affordability crisis, you know, uh, every increase in property taxes makes it more challenging for homeowners to to carry those costs and for renters because obviously those costs get passed on to renters as well. Right. And, and so this is where, you know, we've, we've got to, like, the province just has to be a, a more, you know, robust fiscal partner. And it's one of the reasons, you know, and I'd say this, I was the only MPP to vote against this whole license plate gimmick <laughs> that uh, the Ford government brought in last year. But I just thought, you know, we're going to cost the provincial treasury, you know, a one-time hit of $2.4 billion dollars. And then an ongoing annual hit of around one to two, one point two to one point five billion dollars, to give a break that primarily benefited wealthy households who own multiple cars, yeah. uh, and then we don't have, you know, supposedly don't have the revenue we need to, you know, shore up our healthcare systems, make these kinds of investments in municipal infrastructure, support the inflationary pressures that municipalities are facing on, you know, service operations and, and uh, capital. And, and so to me, it just feels like, you know, some misguided priorities that um, could be better spent in a, in a way that would actually save us more money in the long run by making some investments, especially investments that help um, take pressure off of the property tax base. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, Mike, before we leave the topic of uh, vehicles and electric, uh, electrification, um, you know, we, we could, we could install all the electric charging systems in the world and everybody could have a, an EV, but it's only the electricity is, is only as clear or, or, or our system is only as clean as the electricity essentially. So if we have polluting, um, forms of electricity, it's, is, is it really cleaner? Um, so you recently, I think as recently as maybe yesterday, wrote a letter to the prime minister and you call, you're calling on him to move immediately to establish uh, federal clean electricity regulations uh, that ban new gas plants and require Ontario uh, to move to a net zero carbon electricity grid by 2030. Um, talk to us a little, bit, a little bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the federal government has already indicated that they're going to bring in the clean electricity standards. And I'm asking them to um, expedite that because I'm deeply worried that the provincial, well, I mean, the provincial government's already announced this, that they're going to spend money on ramping up gas plants. And that's going to end up being a stranded asset that is just going to just affect the pocketbooks of Ontarians in a negative way. Um, and it, it, as they ramp up gas plants, um, some estimates are that that's going to ramp up, you know, climate pollution by 300% this decade and maybe, maybe as high as 400% over the next two decades, which would reverse half of the emission reductions that came from Ontario's coal phase out. And to me, it just makes absolutely no sense from a climate perspective. Like, 
Why are we going in the wrong direction when we're trying to attract capital investment and take it into you know new climate economy uh, jobs like EV manufacturing? And one of the competitive advantages we have is an Ontario's gl- grid is like 95% clean. So why would we go in the opposite direction, especially when it's more expensive? I mean, the bottom line is, is the cost of renewables, especially wind and solar, as well as storage, just come down so much that gas plants are not only, you know, the dirtier option, but the more expensive option. And so, you know, I've been pushing hard for the provincial government to come to its financial and environmental senses and actually invest in the lowest cost, cleanest sources of generation rather than ramping up gas plants. Uh, And, you know, one way to maybe drive that message home even more is if the federal government, you know, actually comes forward with the clean uh, electricity standards they've already said they're going to bring forward. And let's do it before Ontario locks itself into expensive polluting gas plants. Okay. So I'm just curious. Um, Yeah, I, I, I do. I do agree with you about not building new gas plants. Um, do you think the province could survive on just renewables? I know, and I'm. I'll be completely honest. I know uh, the Green Party's platform was sort of against nuclear as an option as well. Well, actually, you know what we've um, we've been very clear that nuclear power is going to be part of Ontario's energy mix for decades going forward. Okay. Um, I'm not opposed to the rebuilding of uh, Bruce in Darlington, which are already, you know, in process. Money's already been spent. We don't want to waste that money. Uh, Pickering's a different story. Uh, you know, it's slated to close. I think it should close. Um, and it's one of the least efficient. Um, I mean, out of the 65 nuclear plants in North America, it's it's the 64th least efficient. Right. So, um, but Darlington Bruce should be rebuilt. Um, nuclear is going to be part of our generating capacity. But as we expand electricity generation, I think we need to go with the lowest cost, cleanest options, uh, which are water, wind, and solar primarily, combined with storage. Uh, I think we need to enhance grid connections, particularly with Quebec. So we do more clean energy trading with Quebec. Um, And the lowest cost solution to our energy crunch is actually using electricity more efficiently. And so there's huge opportunities to help reduce demand through better demand management programs and energy efficiency and conservation programs. But given the need to electrify transportation and building heat, um, we are going to need to substantially increase generation. And it's going to be a diverse mix of generating sources and a diverse mix of solutions that also include demand management, conservation, and energy efficiency. And so to me, that's the lowest cost, cleanest way forward. And that's the way I'm going to, you know, I'm going to continue to advocate for. Right. Um, I think it's clear that, um, We will require some emergency natural gas backup in case of, you know, uh, extreme weather event or, you know, some sort of um, unanticipated outage in certain places in our grid. Um, But to, you know, ramp up gas generation to me doesn't make 
fiscal or environmental sense. I, yeah, I completely agree. Um, with, with In terms of the renewables, I think the one thing that scares people is California's tried this for the last couple of years and they've run into a bunch of issues. Um, if I remember correctly, the first year they did it, uh, they just ran on renewables and forgot about the battery backup. So there were rolling blackouts. <laughs> the next year, their battery backups weren't sufficient. So the buildings that were housing this were catching on fire. Um, but I mean, you're, you're, honestly, like your plan sounds very, very good, very interesting. Um, not opposed to nuclear because honestly, for me, there's no green future without nuclear. And like they keep saying, fusion is all, always 30 years away. So we can't really rely on that. Um, renewable, yeah, I mean, renewal, eh, renewables are great. They're fantastic. It's going to be great for the future. But um, uh, like I like I alluded to, they can't hold the weight of it all by themselves, and many hands make light work. So I I, I applaud you for your for your take on that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, what I get frustrated when it comes to the energy mix is um, so gr Greens have been opposed to building new nuclear, um, not opposed to rebuilding existing nuclear, and which would mean nuclear is going to be like fifty percent of our of our generating capacity well long into the future. Um, but it's like part of that's just driven by cost curves. I mean, you can you can quickly deploy um, wind and solar much faster than you can large nuclear projects. Right. And now the price has come down so much that it's just less expensive too. Now there are issues around dispatching that electricity, which is why storage and storage done properly is so important right but not all of that has to be battery storage i mean we've got pump water storage solutions we got yeah. green hydrogen solutions like i look at the salt caves and you know in the here on bruce area perfect location to be storing green hydrogen which can be dispatched quickly uh so um there's a lot of innovative storage solutions like bi-directional charging for electric vehicles as we get more electric vehicle uh, um, on the road. So, you know, there's a lot of low cost, clean solutions as we move forward. Um, and, and so, you know, that, that's, I, we're just trying to put forward a really practical uh, approach and get out of these uh, debates where it's like all nuclear. And if it's yeah. not all nuclear against nuclear, or it's all renewable energy. And if you're not for all renewable energy, then you're against renewable energy. It's it's looking at how do we have a diverse mix? And I fundamentally believe that the data shows that having a larger renewable component to that mix is the lowest cost, cleanest way forward. I like that. Um, practical is perfect word for it. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And the all or nothing approach is really childish actually. So I, I applaud you for the practical. Um, you've got a hard out in a few more minutes, so I, yeah. I don't want to hold you up anymore. We have two more questions. Um, very quickly with the, with the next budget coming up, uh, what do you want to see in that? Yeah. So one, one of the biggest things for me is I want to see social assistance rates doubled. So we end legislated poverty. Poverty is costing this province $33 billion a year and just the, the human cost to people's lives. I want to see investments in in housing affordability, particularly nonprofit co-op permanent supportive housing. Uh, I want to see investments in shoring up our public health care system, especially addressing the health human resource 
capacity constraints we're facing. Um, you know, let's pay nurses and frontline healthcare workers fair wages, fair benefits, and better work, provide them with better working conditions. And then, of course, I want to see the province step up and start investing in climate adaptation and resiliency, which we've talked about, and in how we reduce climate pollution in ways that help people save money and position Ontario to be a global leader in the climate economy. Fantastic. That's awesome. Okay. Um, one more question. Uh, rumors have been going around with the Liberals searching for a new leader. Uh, your name has popped up a few times. Do we want to confirm or deny that right now? I have no plans. <laughs> no plans to run for the leader. All right. With that in mind, then, uh, what's, no, what's the future? No Christmas party. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> what's the future of the Green Party for you? Uh, what are your plans to grow the party? Um, I, I know you've been with over 40% of the vote in the last two elections, you're, you're kicking butt as, as leader. Um, how, how do you plan on growing that? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest question we have right now is how, how we can build a strong green movement and how we can work across party and ideological lines to push back against the Ford government, especially sprawl agenda, but I would say anti-climate agenda. And so, you know, I feel like we've been leading the charge on protecting the green belt, um, you know, making sure conservation authorities can still protect us from flooding, uh, addressing the housing affordability crisis in a way that doesn't require us to pave over the farmland that feeds us, the nature that protects us. And I think it's continuing to provide that leadership and show people how uh, progressive parties can work with each other to put people first. Fantastic. That's great. Um, yeah, I guess uh, we, we don't want to hold you up any longer, but uh, before you head out, is there any other words you want to leave for municipalities of Ontario? Last words, final words? Well, one, just thanks for having me on. And um, my door is always open when I say we need more uh, cooperation and collaboration between the province municipalities. I really mean that. Uh, and and so, you know, don't hesitate to reach out to, to my office on ways that we can work together and that I can advocate for municipalities. Perfect. Okay. That sounds great. And thanks once again, Mike, for joining us. Um, we can't uh, wait to hear what you have to say at the Good Roads Conference on April yeah. 16th. Um, we hope everybody out there listening will join us as well for a jam-packed three days of informative speakers, workshops, and a handful of very cool study tours, one of which I alluded to I'll be previewing at the end of February. Um, I'm going to try and bring everybody along with uh, some sort of vlog, uh, all meant to help. Uh, so yeah, these, these are all meant to help you run your municipalities more efficiently uh, for an agenda, registration information, accommodations, which are filling up quickly. I think we're down to like 5% in our block or something like that. Uh, visit goodroads.ca slash conference. Uh, yeah, and make sure to do that quickly because uh, early bird rates end February 17th. Uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and now Instagram for up-to-date information on everything happening at Good Roads. Uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, give it a give it a thumbs up. Uh, remember to subscribe because it's not just the podcast that goes up here. We offer tons of great content to help you run your municipality as efficiently as possible. And also leave a comment, give us your feedback. We love to hear from you. So until next time, everybody, take it easy. Bye.